Welcome to your online coffee break, where we discuss bite-sized topics that inspire, educate, and entertain. Here's your host, a software innovator, award-winning marketer, and astronomy and space buff, Chuck Fields. Hello, thanks for joining me today for your online coffee break. Today, I'd like to welcome to the show my special guest, Casey Trier. Casey is the Chief Advocate and Senior Space Policy Advisor for the Planetary Society, the world's largest independent space outreach organization. Casey is an expert on space and Mars exploration policy, geopolitics, robotic missions to Mars, and the commercialization of space and human spaceflight history. Casey is joining us today to not only discuss his incredible role in space exploration, but also National Geographic's Mars Season 2 TV series. Online Coffee Break. Thanks for joining me today, Casey. Always happy to be here. Oh, our pleasure. Now, Casey, you are an expert on space policy. In fact, you're the director of space policy for the Planetary Society. That is the most coolest job title I could ever imagine. How on earth did you get started in that field? Well, I have an even cooler title right now. I just actually changed it. I'm now the chief advocate for the Planetary Society as well as their ah. senior space policy advisor. So uh, nice. the, the role is evolving. I get to do even more of what I love, which is talk to folks like you and talk to our members and advocate for space exploration. And, you know, everyone kind of has a different story going into space policy. And mine mm-hmm was unique in that sense as well. I lived in Los Angeles. I, you know, I was always a fan of the Planetary Society. It's the world's largest nonprofit space organization. And I always wanted to work there. And it was seeing the launch, I actually went to Cape Canaveral, saw the launch of the Mars Curiosity rover. And it Ah, was about as moving of a spiritual moment that I've ever had. And (laughs) I asked myself later that night, why am I not doing everything that I can to make sure that missions like this keep happening. And I had no good answer. And that was the night that I resolved to work at the Planetary Society, moved to Los Angeles, convinced them to hire me, and moved into the policy advocacy outreach role where I have remained to this day. So it it, it was an unusual and very fortunate series of coincidences that enabled that to happen, but fundamentally came from this very passionate moment of seeing something incredible happen, which I think really unites me and a lot of people who love space together, that feeling of standing in the presence of something greater than yourself, something exciting and something just truly moving. Oh, see, I totally agree with you on that. As a matter of fact, I don't know if we could mandate this, but I almost think if every person could witness a rocket launch... (laughs) You know, I've I've thought that exact same thing. I want to start like a... I'd love to start some sort of a fund to send kids and people, maybe even voters, (laughs) to go down, witness a rocket launch, because it is absolutely spectacular. It's something never to be missed in in one's life. And I cannot emphasize, you know, I I, even every year or two, I try to make sure that I see one just as that spiritual renewal, right? Like working in policy can be can be frustrating every now and then right? in politics. Yes. (laughs) And so to see it actually happen, to see the hardware sitting on the pad, to see it launch into space and to see so many people working together peacefully for this greater purpose of discovery and advancing human knowledge. It's just really inspiring. You know, I totally agree. Could we all work together like that? It's just so incredible to see. Now, now, Casey, you are considered one of the big thinkers for National Geographic's Mars series, uh, which just entered its second season. Now, a big thinker, for those of you who haven't seen the series, it actually has a 
uh, sort of a hybrid uh, fictional version of people actually on Mars in the future combined with uh, modern day scientists and experts in the fields talking about Mars. And, and Casey, you're, you're among some pretty good experts because other big thinkers they have are you know Elon Musk, Bill Nye, Andy Weir. Wow. So can you give us any details on some of the issues you discussed as a big thinker in season two? Well, one of the big conflicts in the show that we, we talk about is the competition or at least conflict that is inherent sometimes between scientific exploration and then resource exploitation. So the, the desires of business to use the resources from a new area and the desire of the scientific field to understand and explore those in a very different way. And so that was one of the big conflicts in the show, and that's one of the things that I ended up talking about a lot, that conflict sometimes between the science and the business initiatives or mm-hmm. endeavors that, you know, has happened over history and will continue to happen, you know, just because we're humans. See, I think that's such a good thing because, I mean, we're, we're so focused sometimes on just getting to Mars. You know, I've, I've been wanting for years. A lot of us have. We're like, why aren't we there yet? You know, we hit the moon almost 50, 50 years ago, which is so hard to believe. And a lot of people that we should be at Mars now. And. What I love about the series is it says, well, getting to Mars, that's going to be tough enough. But once we're there, we've got to think about the other things. And when we do have, you know, I love how the series goes into industry coming. And then we have the conflict between, you know, the the scientist and the profit business and, and how we deal with that. I think that's so incredible on that. Um, for your current policy, space policy that, that you're into, I know you advocate, obviously, for exploration. Are you working on policies that would help us adjust to human civilization on Mars or even the moon if we have a moon base before that? Well, we're really looking at let's take the first step first and, and mm-hmm. let's just get us to that point. You know, and there's there's opportunities to start thinking about of how we'll live. But, you know, we can't start to even do that until we, we were there to live. And yes. you know, so <laughs> I tend to be pragmatic <laughs> in that sense. And, you know, it's one of those interesting things. I think what you'll start to see is as humans expand out into the solar system, initially they're going to look a lot like our bases in Antarctica, where they're primarily Mm -hmm. government-funded for the most part, where they're primarily going to be scientists and specialists there for very specific tasks, and they'll be rotating out quite a bit. And so I don't think you will at least initially have to face the very tricky and very open-ended questions Mm -hmm. of how do you self-organize into a semi-independent political unit once you're removed from all (laughs) all the comforts (laughs) that you're used to on earth Uh, not to mention even the ability to you know buy an apple let's say you know (laughs) just have a fresh food or to have you know we're we're so used to this 21st century global economy everything i want i can buy avocados in canada in january right but I, right. you, you can't even get an avocado in sunny days on Mars, you know, because a sunny day on Mars is going to be, you know, topping out at 20 degrees and there's no air and there's no water and there's perchlorates in the soil. So you have a series of issues about how you're going to self-organize, particularly when you're far away. Who is the authority figure? Who can you appeal to for authority? Who can you uh, use as a state? You know, can the state really impose its will hundreds of millions of miles away? No one really knows yet. So, that, you know, this is why I want to get let's get to that point, really figure it out. But so we're really focused on let's take that step and let's just get beyond low Earth orbit and we'll take it from there. OK, well, let's talk about that. I, I believe in 2015, you led the Planetary Society's uh, Humans Orbiting Mars initiative. That's correct. C- can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, that was an attempt to say, how can we get to Mars if we accept certain kind of political realities? So we, Apollo happened 
because it was very briefly a high national security priority, right? We had to show the world that the Soviets were not the technological powerhouse in the world. We were, the United States were. We don't have that alignment of national security, national prestige with space anymore. And so if you look at the history ever since Apollo, the budget for NASA varies between, you know, maybe the equivalent of 15 and $25 billion of current day dollars. What can you do? How can you get to Mars, assuming that you're not going to have some massive influx of cash? And the, the plan that we looked at was is, is really came out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. You know, it was well featured in the Martian and other places around the world known for its robotic spaceflight. And say, right. can we make a stepwise path to Mars where everything that we do today is done with an eye on Mars in the future? And we just plod our way through until we end up in Mars in 20 years without requiring massive budget increases. And, and we believe there's a pathway there. And the first step to that is you orbit at the moon and then ultimately you orbit at Mars and then you land at Mars. And you, you take a very systematic approach where you're always building on your technologies and you're always moving further out. One thing, by the time this this uh, podcast as this episode airs, uh, we will have hopefully witnessed Mars Insight uh, landing successfully on on Mars. Um, but there still begs that question of when will humans get to Mars? And I know SLS has had delay after delay and, and budget increases and, and all that. Um, what are your – how does your space policies fit with like SLS and actually getting humans to Mars in a certain time frame? Well, it really comes down from the top. And again, we've seen this again and again in space history – the most, again, going back to Apollo, again, somewhat of an aberration. But what happened was you had a strong presidential declaration and then immediately a strong congressional support. And the money began to show up almost right away. And they had the resources and an alignment and a clear goal that enabled them to pursue a, a, a successful mission. Ever since then, particularly in human spaceflight at NASA, you have not seen the clear political alignment. That says this is the goal and it's shared beyond the White House. It's shared in Congress. That needs to happen, I think, before we really start getting to Mars. The technological issues are solvable issues, mm -hmm. right? Like there's no technical reason why we can't start going to Mars today. It's a purely political problem. And that's not a fun problem for a lot of people to solve because politics aren't always the most fun to engage in because it's ultimately a human endeavor. Humans can yes. be very frustrating people to work with. And <laughs> yes. however, ultimately, when you do have a political alignment, it can be extremely powerful. And it's building that support, building the coalitions and building really the, the broader public consensus that this is an important investment by a nation. This is an important investment by the world. And this is an important, important opportunity, not only for scientific discovery, but for peaceful cooperation efforts and, and returns in terms of international diplomacy. And, and that's where Mars really stretches beyond kind of the impact of just having humans on Mars. It's bringing us together in the effort of going. And that's something really rare to have. It is. And, and I, I commend you for being, you know, in space policy. This is what you do, because to me, it is amazing on the political front. It would be so frustrating to, you know, we have certain programs uh, that we have in place, like the Constellation program, and then that gets canceled. Um, and then other programs come and it would be hard for NASA who has to set this long-term um, vision and to have to deal with the politics of changing um, administrations and I, I guess is that what you kind of do 
in terms of the Planetary Society and space policy is, is you come in and try to keep them focused on sort of that goal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, we firmly believe that the Planetary Society, that space is for everybody. And that's whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, Libertarian, Independent, mm-hmm. you know, any sort of self-identity, space has a place for you. And the one of the actually very beautiful things about Congress, it's one of the, the I'd say, one of the more redeeming aspects, is that there is a mm-hmm. broad fondness and support for NASA in the political parties. It's one of the very few remaining nonpartisan areas of, of Congress and, and government. And we really want to keep it that way, right? Because ultimately, you're going to have changes in Congress. You're going to have changes in the White House. So the only way to succeed, if you're pursuing a multi-decade effort that is expensive, difficult, challenging, so forth, you have to have broad buy-in from everybody, and you have to see the value. And that's one of the things I think that we're, we work to, to do. We actually helped found a caucus in the, in, in the Congress this year called the Planetary Science Caucus, which is devoted to exploration of the planets, search for life. And that has, it was led by a Democrat and a Republican in the House, a Democrat and a Republican in the Senate. We have something like 35 members of both parties to support these types of endeavors. So it's just, it's a matter of organizing and it's a matter of communicating effectively. And this is the role of every one of your listeners. You can talk to your, re- your representative in Congress. You have the opportunity to share how important this is with them so they understand that this is something to prioritize at some level or at least not undermine. And that's a critical role that every citizen can play. Oh, absolutely. And I just, I love the role of the Planetary Society in that. Um, One thing, I'd like to kind of switch gears because I love the projects that you're working on. And one of the projects is a citizen-funded project called LightSail 2. I was wondering if you can just tell us a little bit more about that one. The LightSail 2 is the sequel. It's really the kind of the first. It's a, a couple of years ago, we did a demonstration project of what if you took a very small spacecraft and when you have very small spacecraft, obviously you don't have a lot of room for things in them. What's something you can't shrink down is fuel, right? Fuel is just a, right. it's a liquid. <laughs> so how do you move around in space? Well, you can use the sun. And just like a sailboat in the wind can tack in and out of the wind and, and move all around, you can use the solar wind and pressure, solar pressure from light from the sun, can tack in and out of it. If you deploy a large enough solar sail, you can fly around in space for effectively free, right? You don't need to bring as much fuel. You can just use the sun, right? It's always the, the nice thing about right. space. It's always sunny there, right? There's yes. no clouds to block <laughs> you. And so what if we shrink this down into what's called a CubeSat, a very small spacecraft? You could use these to, you know, there's, there's functionally limitless energy, uh, at least in the solar system, to use these light sails, solar sails mm-hmm. with. So light sail 2 is completely citizen-funded. We're going to be launching on the next Falcon Heavy rocket, which is just awesome <laughs> in and of yes. itself, uh, whenever that launches. Uh, and it's going to demonstrate true solar sailing and a truly independent uh, effort to explore space and to demonstrate new technologies. And then we intend to help spread that technology and share it with others so they can start using it to further and further into space. Well, I cannot wait. And you mentioned it's, it's uh, launching aboard you know, the SpaceX Falcon Heavy, which... I'm sure all of us remember just the the first Falcon Heavy just uh, earlier this year, uh, launching the wonderful Starman into uh, yes, <laughs> past I, Mars I orbit, like which I was is ten years old again. Watching that, that was spectacular. I, I did too. Wasn't that great? Were you as glued to the TV uh, watching it on YouTube as I was? I just I could not take my eyes off it. I yeah, thought it was I, incredible. I believe I yelped when they, when they both landed at the same time. I yelled out loud. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I was very. You're not the it. only one, Casey. That's for sure. No. 
I want to switch gears one more time because this is a, a question that some of my listeners keep coming up with, and I, I don't know a lot about it, but it's this Space Force uh, that the current administration has talked about. There's lots of talk going on about that. What does the Space Force look like, in your opinion? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a name that sounds far more evocative than the actual reality. So right, right. <laughs> now you have two space programs in the United States. You have NASA and then you have the National Defense, National Security Space Efforts. And those are functionally different. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually spend in the United States more money on the national security side of space than NASA if you had them all together. So huh. uh, in the Department of Defense, in the Pentagon, the Air Force is generally responsible for most space activities. And these are generally, you know, somewhat some spying communications, the GPS network. Uh, you know, early missile warning launch systems and so forth. It's mainly observation. And the idea is with Space Force is that you carve out activity from the Air Force and move it into its own equal branch of the armed services. And that would allow those uh, people in that branch to more effectively internally advocate for their needs to really truly focus on space-based national security issues, space-based uh, detection of, of potential threats, and mm-hmm. to just basically it's a, it's a statement more than anything functionally changing. It's, it's not going to be, you know, space marines getting dropped in through with laser blasters anywhere. That, that's not <laughs> sure. what it is at all. It's actually a, a somewhat quite boring bureaucratic reshuffling of the Pentagon that has a very exciting name and could cost anywhere from 4 to $13 billion just to <laughs> just to move things around. Wow. You, add, you add a lot more staff. You have a lot, much more bureaucracy, basically. And, uh, you know, but it's not necessarily a, a bad idea either. There, there are strong arguments for it. There's arguments against it. And it's it's not as cut and dry as a lot of the media coverage has, has made it sound. And it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to see how this go forwards now, goes forward now with in this new uh, Democrat-run House of Representatives. Yes, yeah, so and I guess one question I had too is, is it just for defending us against other, um, I guess, entities on the on the Earth, or it, do you think it'd be combined with our sort of our near Earth asteroid um, protection that we're currently doing? Is it totally separate than that? More military than? Yeah, it would be completely separate. Okay. And as much as I would love the Pentagon to take over the funding responsibilities from NASA because they generally it's easier for them to get money right. than, than NASA. Yes, um, NASA is currently the lead agency responsible for. Uh, asteroid detection, deflection, and organization within the government about disaster response to a planetary defense. They call that planetary defense. So it's got a somewhat of a confusing name in that sense. But NASA right. is the lead, the lead agency on that. Pentagon is much more prosaic issues facing potential threats from China, Russia, and others. Okay. Well, thanks for clearing that up for me. I do appreciate that because I certainly want to see us go forward on exploration where we can go. And of course, I want the Earth to be protected on that. Now, you actually... You help educate the public, Casey, about space policy through your blog, and I love your monthly space policy edition of the Planetary Radio podcast. Um, what else can our audience do to help advocate for space and or support the Planetary Society? Well, obviously, my boss would fire me if I didn't say that you should join as a member of the Planetary <laughs> sure. Society. Well, because, I mean, it's actually really important. The Planetary Society is, is the only independent, and independent means we're funded just by people like you. Uh, around the world, we have 55,000 members who choose to pay to be members. It's four bucks a month starting. It's very easy. It's a cup of coffee a month. And right. that money allows us to be to say what we feel, to give the most honest appraisal of, of all of these issues that we just talked about. 
and also to represent you functionally in Washington, D.C., and to, to basically be that voice for you without having any corporate interest tell us what to do. That independence comes with the price that we we need members to, to exist. And so join as a member at planetary.org. And then I also have, if you want to really step up your space kind of politics and policy game, uh, I just released a free online course uh, at courses.planetary.org, all about space advocacy. It's called Space Advocacy 101. And it's meant nice. for beginners. You can learn all about how Congress works, how to be a more effective space advocate, how to read the NASA budget. It really brings you up to speed and makes you incredibly effective as an advocate. And you can learn all about that at courses.planetary.org. Oh, excellent. Well, Casey, this is some great information. Again, I want to thank you for just uh, being part of the National Geographic Smart Series, for all of your space policy work that you do at the Planetary Society, and thank you so much for taking time out of your hugely busy schedule to join us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Online Coffee Break. Wow, I really enjoyed my conversation with Casey today. I hope you did too. If you'd like to support or find out more about the Planetary Society, just go to their website, planetary.org. Also, hope you're following along with the National Geographic Mars Season 2 TV series. Uh, it's fantastic. If you'd like to learn more about that series, just go to their website, nationalgeographic.com. I want to thank Casey for joining us today. I want to thank your audience for joining us today as well. If you'd like to comment on today's topic, just go to our website, onlinecoffeebreak.com. Leave a comment there. You can also call us at 317-862-4700. Leave a comment there. Who knows? We just might play it on the air. We'd also love it if you'd follow us on Instagram at onlinecoffeebreak. Uh, we'd also appreciate it if you'd rate us on iTunes or just share this episode with a friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. See you next time. God bless.